Hello and welcome to Future Work Life. My name's Ollie Henderson and a bit of a change of plan this week. You might have heard, but over the weekend there was something going on in Silicon Valley. Um, a few issues with a bank. And anyway, my guest this week was supposed to be Alison Bourne-Gates. She's a general partner at Sempervirens, a VC fund. And we are still speaking, but after the events of the weekend, uh, we agreed it'd be better to push the conversation back a little while. Needless to say, Alison's had a busy few days. So what to do with this week's podcast? Well, I've been planning this for a while, actually, and um, I've been spending quite a lot of time thinking about reflection recently. I've written about it in the newsletter as well, and taking time to stop, look back on the progress that I've made personally and sort of reflecting on how other people can do the same go through that process themselves so I thought why not look back and pick an episode from a year ago which has really influenced my thinking since then and I thought who else other than Daniel Pink who's been one of my favorite authors for years he wrote a fantastic book last year focused on regret and he was kind enough also to contribute to my book to some of the conversation from today's pod made its way into work life flywheel Dan was also really supportive of the book. So thank you again to him for endorsing it. And look, the highlight of this conversation for me was reframing how we make decisions day to day and how we make decisions in the moment. And I really love this idea that you hear Dan talk about, which is essentially casting yourself forward and thinking backwards. Saying to yourself, look, in 30 years time when I look back on this decision, what am I going to think about it? Am I going to regret not being bolder, for example. And that's very much the way I'm thinking about decisions I'm making in my career and in my life as well. So yeah, I think you'll really enjoy this. Thanks as ever for listening. I promise Alison and I will be talking on the show next week. But until then, enjoy my conversation with Daniel Pink. So Dan, thanks very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Ali, great to be with you. So your new book's about regret. I'm just interested in why you wanted to focus on regret what drew you into spending so much time studying it and I suppose from a broader point of view why should we be aware and conscious of the regret in our life well I mean those two questions are combined in a way I mean the reason I got on this topic was in part because I was just I was at a point in my life where I had mileage behind me and mileage ahead of me and so I was looking backward and also looking forward at the same time and I realized that I had some regrets and, you know, I wasn't bogged down by them, but they were significant. And mm-hmm. when I started talking to people about it, I found that they people really leaned in and wanted to talk about this topic in a way that really surprised me, especially given the taboo that seems to be on this topic of regret, that we should never look backward, that we should always be positive. And so that intrigued me. And I started looking at the research and I realized that, whoa, we had really misunderstood this emotion. Now, what did now on the second part of your question or your second question, what did we misunderstand about it? I think we misunderstand two things. One, everybody has regrets. Regrets make us human. This philosophy of no regrets uh, is complete nonsense. Uh, everybody has regrets. Um, it, it, they're, they're part of our cognitive machinery. And the reason they're part of our cognitive machinery is that they help us do better. Um, there's a pile of research showing that if we deal with our regrets properly, and that's a big if, if we deal with our regrets properly, they can help us make better decisions. They can help us become better negotiators. They can help us become better strategists, better problem solvers, and find greater meaning. And so the key here is that we have to 
uh, not ignore our regrets, but not wallow in them either, but instead uh, confront them. The regret itself is an emotion. It's a, it's a negative emotion. It makes us feel bad. We look backward and say, if only I had or hadn't done something. And then we come back to the present and imagine a present that is very different from the, the current present because we've negated or changed our previous decision. And, and knowing that we made a bad decision or knowing that we took a stupid action or knowing that we didn't act makes us feel bad in, in the present. And that is a, that is a signal. Uh, and that's the key. As I said earlier, you don't want to ignore that signal and say, no regrets. I never look backward. And you don't want to wallow in it and say, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. I'm a terrible person. You want to actually look it in the eye and, and confront it. Now, what I did in, in part to understand this topic is that I looked at some of the existing academic research. I did a large quantitative survey of the U.S. population, but I also did a collected regrets from lots of people all over the world. Uh, we're up now, I think, over 18,000 regrets from people in well over 100 countries. And what I found there was that over and over again around the world, people had the same four core regrets. These regrets came up over and over and over again. And they often had, they were, they were less about the domain of people's lives, career, education, finance, health, romance, and much more about something deeper in their motivation and aspiration. I, I've been chatting about your book with a few people over the past week, and it's really interesting. When you, when you ask somebody the question, their, fir their first instinct about what they regret is fascinating because I think some people's first instinct is to think, I regret having done something. Mm. But many more seem to regret having not done something. And I think that's also backed up within your research, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, it's true. And, and this is true in, in the research that I've done. It's also true in some of the academic research that if you look at the, the overall architecture of regret, you know, you have regrets of action, regrets about what I did and regrets about inaction, regrets about what I didn't do. And what you see typically is that, you know, in people's 20s or so, they have about equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction. But as they age, the inaction regrets take over, uh, the inaction regrets predominate. And that's partly because for certain kinds of regrets of action, we can't, let's say we hurt somebody, we can make amends, we can apologize. Um, we can, you know, uh, but for, for inaction regrets, things that we didn't do, those things that the what if of that, the, the unrealized opportunity of that really sticks with us. Mm. Now, the, the book talks about the power of regret. So Presumably then, as you said, actually reflecting upon your regrets can help you make future decisions. So how does the framing of those regrets feed into that? Well, it's important that you deal with them. It's important that, 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 you, that you confront them properly. And so, you know, again, as I was saying before, you don't want to just dismiss them and you don't want to ruminate over them. You want to confront them. And so this philosophy of no regrets is, is, is basically false courage. Courage is looking your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. And the science shows a fairly systematic way to do that. So step one of that would be sort of, I like to think of it as inward, outward, forward, inward, outward, forward. So inward is how do you, as you say, Ollie, how do you reframe it in terms of how you look at it? How do you look at yourself and your regret? And so a lot of times when we talk to ourselves, we are brutal. We are cruel in the way we deal with ourselves, the way we talk to ourselves. And, um, you know, so instead of doing that, we should treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. Uh, as gooey as that might sound, this is rooted in some very good research in what's called self-compassion. 
which is the brainchild of Kristen Neff at the University of Texas here in the States. And, it, and what that says is that you should you know, deal with yourself the way you would deal with someone you actually care about. Uh, we would never talk to our friends the way we sometimes talk to ourselves. So first step in the reframing is treat yourself with kindness, not rather than contempt. Look at your missteps as part of the human condition and also um, you know, as a moment in your life, not as the full definition of your life. So the second step is, is disclosure. And um, it, it turns out that dis- disclosure does a lot of things for us. It, it's an unburdening. Um, it also is a way to, we sometimes worry that when we disclose our missteps, our failures, our vulnerabilities, our regrets, whatever, we fear that people will think less of us. When in fact, there's a lot of evidence showing that in many cases, not all, they think more of us. But the most important thing about disclosure is that it's a form of sense-making. So that when you take these blobby, negative abstraction, which is kind of looming and amorphous, and then you convert it into language, either by writing about it or talking about it, you make you, you go from abstract to concrete and you go from menacing to far less fearsome. And that begins the sense-making process. So you can you know just describe your regret to somebody even writing about it for 15 minutes a day for three consecutive days is a good idea. Then finally, so we got inward, you're reframing how you look at it. Outward, you're disclosing it to make sense of it. And then forward, your next step is to extract a lesson from it. And the way that we extract a lesson from it is by getting some distance from it. Uh, we tend to, we, we, we're, we're pretty bad at solving our own problems because we plunge into them like a scuba diver. What we should be doing is looking at our problems like an oceanographer, taking a step back, zooming back. And so there's some interesting techniques for doing that. You can, as goofy as it sounds, talk to yourself in the third person rather than, you know, in the first person. You can um, um, sort of use your your brain's incredible time traveling abilities to sort of go forward in time and look back on what you are uh, doing and you can also just ask yourself, you know, what would I tell my best friend to do here? And so the combination of these things gives us a way to take this regret and use it as not as a not as something to dismiss and not as something to debilitate us, but as something that we can enlist to move forward. On that theme, this is always this trope that when you're, you're lying on your deathbed, nobody ever said that. You, you wish you'd worked more but there's certainly an insight within the research that there's probably lots of people who regret not having taken that step into doing something absolutely absolutely one of the big four regrets are boldness regrets which is that you're at a juncture in your life and it doesn't you know it's often in careers but not only in careers it's in romance it's in everything um you're at a juncture in your life you can play it safe or take the chance and when you know when when People tend to regret not taking the chance, not always, but much more than I would have expected. Um, and it doesn't even matter so much what the outcome is. It matters that you didn't take the chance and you you have this lingering what if question. Mm. And it yeah. comes out a lot. It comes out a lot in work and careers. People regret in the career realm and boldness. People regret not starting their own business. People regret not going out on their own in some way. People regret not speaking up. Um, people regret not taking a chance. People regret... Uh, focusing on not failing rather than succeeding. And so, um, so you don't, you, you, you don't, I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of, uh, of regrets uttered on our deathbed. 
um, because I think that's a little too late to do anything about them. Um, I mean, no, nobody regrets not spending enough time at the office, but they do regret not using the half of their waking hours they spend at work in a useful way. You, you write about the, the, the importance of purpose and particularly within a context of motivating people and intrinsic motivation. I just wonder how you think about this idea about work life, particularly in the current context where the way in which many people have worked has changed. You know, lots of people are now working remotely. They're not necessarily congregating in offices together. How do you see the kind of idea of meaning within the, the, the current workplace? And I wonder whether you've seen that change over the past couple of years. I think it's going to vary for I think it's going to vary from person to person. It's interesting. I think that in some cases there that 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 work and life should be more integrated and in other cases less integrated. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I mean, it is very hard to completely compartmentalize our lives. So the person you are in at your you know in your private life, I think it's there's a it's it's unhealthy if the person you are in your public life is something radically, radically, radically different. Um, if the way that you act, your values, your aspirations, your form of behavior is wildly different from one place to another, I, I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's particularly healthy. Um, I, but I also think that a full integration between work and life is also not healthy. Uh, that I think that you need some kind of soft separation sometimes, and I think that's what we're in the pen, you know, after two years of this horrible pandemic, I think that that's what people are are searching for, and I think that we're going to sort that out over the next, you know, probably the rest of this year. So mm-hmm. let me give you an example from 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 my own life. I um I happen to work in the refurbished garage in my house, so I actually have a commute. It's twenty two steps out my back door, so there is a so there is a kind of a soft separation between those mm. two uh, in the same way that I think that for people who say, if you, if you have a small apartment and you have a small flat, I don't think that you should spread your work all over that small apartment. I think that you should actually find a place in that small apartment to be your workplace. So you don't have this thing that is, you don't have this thing that is fully, fully integrated. I think that it's also important, you know, in many cases, if you can to stop work, so that when it becomes seven o'clock at night, you say, you know what, the rest of the night, I'm not going to look at my email. I'm not going to look at my laptop. Um, and so but 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 again, we we there's always been a natural affinity between work and home. I mean, the aberration is the second half of the 20th century when we had this sep- this this big separation between this place was where we work. And this place is where we live. Before that, they were much more integrated. And I think they're going to be reintegrated, but I don't think that they should be fully blended together. Yeah. Talking about another of your previous books, I think it's about 20 years ago, you wrote Free Agent Nation, where you were talking about the sort of trend towards people becoming more independent in the way they work and becoming freelancers, contractors, solopreneurs. Do you think the acceleration in that trend has uh, increased over the past couple of years? Do you think this pandemic will provoke people to work more independently? Or do you think it'll have the reverse effect as people retreat back to this kind of security of working within an organization? I think it's a I think it's a mix of both. One of the arguments in that book was that technology would enable the people to work more independently, to work more on their own, to be self-employed, um, certainly to work remotely. And, you know, I totally underestimated the technology then. Uh, that was before smartphones. 
Uh, mm. It was before widespread broadband and Wi-Fi. It was before Zoom. And, and so now the technology has allowed that in ways that are just that are just breathtaking. And I think that that is I think that is irreversible. What's more, what we had, you know, when I wrote that book 100 years ago, you had, you know, and I was saying that 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 more people would be working remotely, that more people would be working at home. A lot of people thought I was nuts because they said, well, you can't trust people to do that. They have to be on site. They have to you can't trust people to 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 to, to work at home. Working at home is basically shirking. And, um, you know, then we had this international two year experiment with it. And it turned out you could trust people and that people actually were more productive in many cases at home. And so I think that's a very difficult egg to unscramble. And so um, and, and you see this now in the labor markets, especially in the United States, where companies that are insisting that everybody go back to the office full time are finding it harder to get talent because people don't want to do that. That said, I don't think that the you know, I, I just I don't think that organizations are going away or that offices are going away. What we're doing is we're I think the next year, as I said earlier, is that we're trying to sort all this stuff out. What kind of work should be done remotely? What kind of work should be done on site? What kind of work should be done solo? What kind of work should be done collaboratively? And we're trying to sort that out right now. I mean, back to the theme of regret. We touched on there the sense that having some form of regret can be a positive thing. You talk about anticipatory regret in the book, but and anticipate regret as in if you think about what you know the the ramifications of a decision you're making um you know the possible regret you might have in the future that can motivate you or perhaps put in perspective the right decision yeah. uh, i mean maybe you could run through the pros and cons of that approach because i was quite i was quite attracted to that i think like, actually that's a mental model that's a really interesting idea to fast forward 10 years 20 years yeah. and think about how i might make decisions but there was one interesting thing in there which i'm sure you'll cover which is that it doesn't always lead to the right decision. So I'm just interested no. kind of how you think about no, that. No, no. Well, so what happens with anticipated regret is that sometimes we overestimate how much regret we're going to. There are a couple of, there are a few problems with anticipated regret. There's some very strong positives too. So with anticipated regret, um, what we sometimes will do is, I mean, I think there's, let me give you, let me give you a good example of this. Uh, it has to do with, think about like a multiple choice exam, a multiple choice test where you, you know, you go through and you, you mark answer A to question number nine. And then you go further along and you say, wait a second, I think the answer to question nine might be C. So do you switch your answer? And a lot of the test taking guidance, most of the test taking guidance that says, don't switch your answer, go with your first instinct. And that's wrong. I mean, what, it, what the evidence shows is that when we switch our answers, we're more likely to get it right. What stops us is anticipated regret because we are we, we hate the idea of we're anticipating how bad we're going to feel if we switch from the right answer to the wrong answer. We don't anticipate feeling bad if we just stick with the wrong answer. And so and so what happens is, is, that, is that that anticipated regret forces us into a decision that is too risk averse and is also sub, that is suboptimal. What's more is that we sometimes overstate how much and what we're going to regret. And so we end up, as Dan Gilbert says, buying emotional insurance we don't need. What we should be doing is we should be, as you say, Ali, going forward in time and looking back and knowing that future you, we have a very good sense what future you is going to regret. Future you is not going to regret buying a blue car over a gray car. The view of five years from now is not going to regret wearing a green sweater today or a blue sweater today. That's just not going to be significant. What future you is going to regret if we believe these 17, 18,000 people who've submitted their regret, 
future you is going to regret not building a stable foundation for your life. Future you is going to regret not taking an appropriate risk. Future you is going to regret not doing the right thing. Future you is going to regret not building connections to people you love. And that's it. And so when you anticipate your regret, those are the things that future you is going to regret. I think we know that pretty clearly. And everything else, don't worry about. Um, but actually make sure that you maximize on those things. And I think that that offers a mental model for making appropriate forward-facing choices. Yeah. I'm interested whether the study of yours over the past couple of years, you've written a book, has changed the way you think about regret. Have you noticed yourself acting differently? You know, in terms of those connections, would you be more, much more likely to maintain Absolutely. contact with certain people? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the especially on the connection regrets that, mm. you know, one of those big four categories, the connection regrets are just to give some context are you have a relationship. You should have had a relationship. It comes apart usually by drifting apart rather than by exploding. And one side wants to reach out, but they're, they feel like it's going to be awkward and they feel like the other side's not going to care. And they're always wrong. And one of the things that I've discovered is that if you're at a, if I'm at, I'll say, I'll just make it about me. If I'm at a juncture where I'm wondering, should I reach out or should I not reach out? Being at that juncture itself has answered the question. Always mm. reach out. When in doubt, yeah. reach out. That's one of the, that's one of my big takeaways from the personal takeaways from this book. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a couple of great examples in, in the book, which I know reflects the experience of people I know as well, particularly re regretting having maintained contact with someone who's then passed away, a grandparent or a parent. Oh, yeah. I was chatting to my mum last night, telling her that I was speaking to you today. And she'd mentioned that with her dad, she hadn't had enough conversations about his oh. background. He'd, he'd grown up in Ireland and never really shared the stories of his childhood with my mum. I think there was an, a, a, a reference. I've got to dig out the name of somebody who had had that same experience with their grandparent and then had shared a service now, which they signed up to, which right. their mother fills out. I just thought that was a brilliant example of just a really simple, small action which you could make, which... You know, we must add so much color and it's so, much, so much richness to their relationship now. But what it what it what it shows is that so this is a, I'm so glad you mentioned that this is a woman who her grandparents came to live with she's American came to live with her for a couple of months every year and she mm. as a kid resented that she didn't like having them around and then they passed away and she said oh my gosh I completely blew it I didn't hear their stories I didn't have a sense of what their lives are but instead of instead of again here's the thing instead of saying ah oh, no regrets. Uh, or wallowing in it, she said, okay, I got to do something about this. And so she made a much more affirmative effort to get the stories of her own parents and find meaning that way. Yeah. And when you look at the different types of regret in there, there's some which are, you, you kind of get a sense that would be easily actionable in terms of changing your behavior. So maintaining connections, like you just have to pick up the phone or write that email in right. terms of moral regrets. I mean, like you, it's quite, quite easy. You make a decision in a moment about how you want to behave. I wonder though, whether some of these sort of personality traits like boldness uh, that feels like something that you're either you're bold or you're not bold you're willing to take risks to start a business or you're not i wonder how easy it is to develop the behaviors which can change what you do with your lives with those things are they are those just things that you have to look at over time compared to the decisions you make in the moment yeah you know i think that it depends i look to see in my quantitative i did a quantitative survey of the u.s population and looked to see whether there were differences between say, introverts and extroverts, and there weren't, um, mm. to my surprise. Uh, you know, what you see is you see that whether you're introverted or extroverted, you, you see a little bit of a this sort of a, bi uh, a preference for action over inaction. 
um, so that people talk about not speaking up, people talk about regretting not speaking up, people regret not asserting themselves. Uh, you even have people who regret even using the word extroverted and not being a little bit more extroverted. And, and I do think that you know, a psychologically rich life involves some degree of action and doing stuff rather than yeah. passivity. And I think that that's the preference that people have. And there's my guess is that there's going to be personality variation across that, but not nearly as massive as one would think. There's, there was an interesting uh, insight in there about even pretending to be extroverted, wasn't there? I yeah, I mean, there's some interesting research about that. I mean, I, yeah. as someone who is who is more on the introverted side of the spectrum, um, it's a little disconcerting. But but even you know, in some ways, pretending to be an extrovert or or, or doing things that where you you try to overcome the 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 discomfort and assert yourself or be a little bit more extroverted tends to make people on average feel a little bit better. Uh, and that suggests, mm. so that, that suggests that, that the human condition, we might be better off being active. I think it's, I, I think some of it has to do with active rather than active rather than passive. Um, yeah. and so we, we, and so when we're, when we're passive, we are, we regret, we regret passivity more than being active within certain boundaries. Hmm. And actually one, one other distinction just to make related to that, I think, because regret is essentially an emotion that you experience when it was something within your control. Yeah. But I just want to mention a stat, which was in the book, which essentially was that three quarters of the people surveyed both believed in free will, but also believed in the power of fate. I'm just interested in what that says about us as humans. And I suppose whether that also relates to that distinction between regret and disappointment. Well, I'm glad you raised that because I did ask in this quantitative survey of the U.S. population whether people believed in free will, and most did. And then I also asked them whether they, they thought that everything, did everything happen, tend to happen for a reason, and they believe that too. In fact, most <laughs> people believe both, which is a little bit annoying. Um, but, you know, maybe there's something to that. That is, that is the way that we, as we navigate, and, and again, this is part of the clarifying power of regret that this concept of regret gives us greater clarity into our lives because the truth is, is like we are, we have control over some things and we don't have control over other things. And mm. teasing that out ends up being a pretty important part about how do you, you know, how do you, how do you succeed? I mean, you know, one of the things that I, one of the things that I like in this, that one of the ideas here that I think is powerful, one that I did myself is something called a failure resume where you look at your, you, you know, instead of, you know, your regular resume is a list of all of your accomplishments and accolades and all that kind of stuff. And a failure resume is the exact opposite of that. You, you list your failures, your screw ups, your mistakes. I did that. You, you, so, so you list them in one column and then you, in the next column, you put the lesson that you learned in the third column, you put what you're going to do about it. And when I did that myself in that second column of the lesson learned in some cases with the screw ups and mistakes, there wasn't a lesson. Mm. It's like stuff happens didn't yeah. work. Well, I don't, you know, and, and so, and, but that's actually in some ways reassuring. And so, and, and so actually teasing out where do you have some dominion and where do you not have dominion? What part of life is circumstantial and haphazard and what part of life do you have agency over? I think that's actually a pretty important part of, of being a, a, a sane, health, healthy person. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a combination of self-awareness and self-disclosure again, I suppose. Both being aware about the decisions you're making and the agency of your life, but also 
being quite happy to discuss them either with others or with yourself. Um, I wonder about the, the power of story as well. Do people have these narratives which they carry with them through their lives? Do they tell stories about you know the, the decisions they make? Does that feed into their sense of regret? And I wonder whether when they face up to those regrets in the way that you've described, whether those stories change. Yes, I think that they do. I mean, you know, I mean, regret hinges on storytelling, but at some level, so do our lives. It goes to your earlier question, Ali, which is that there's a guy, there's a personality psychologist here in the States named Dan McAdams, who says that we form our identities based on narrative. And, and there are, you know, when we think about that, the, the, the natural question then, okay, so if our lives are narrative, are we the actors? Are we the characters in that story? Or are we the authors of that story? And the answer is yes, we're both. Sometimes we're the actors. Sometimes we're the authors. And again, it's part of how we tease. How, it's part of how we tease that out. That said, in terms of healthy living in a narrative sense, McAdams talks about two different reigning types of narratives. One is what he calls a contamination narrative, where things go from good to bad. The other is what he calls a redemption narrative, where things go from bad to good. And um, and one of the and healthy living tends to be much more of a redemptive narrative. Uh, and I think that's what regret is. Regret is a redemptive narrative. We take something bad and use it to point ourselves to good. So we say, I didn't reach out to that friend and she passed away. But the next time I'm going to do it better. I didn't take that chance. So the next time I am going to take that chance. I didn't build that stable foundation for my life. So now I'm going to get started on doing that. And I do think that regret offers us a way to have these very healthy, fulfilling uh, redemption narratives. If, you know, again, if we treat it right. Yeah. One last question for you. A lot of people listening will be thinking about what their future careers look like. And they'll be helping them make decisions around the paths that they take. I just refer back to another of your books, A Whole New Mind, talked about this. The, the changing dynamics in the workplace, one of which is automation and technology having an impact on certain types of roles. And you emphasize the importance of creativity, as well as things like stories and empathy. Many of the themes which we've discussed um, since the pandemic began a couple of years ago. I'm just wondering how you think about the role of creativity in our personal lives. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I've been arguing a version of that for 15 years. Um, and and, it, and it's, it's largely because you know, like that book, A Whole New Mind, it's uh, once again, I think I underestimated technology. Um, you know, I talked about automation being able to take on certain kinds of left brain linear logical types of, of work that's happened a lot faster and a lot um, um, more powerfully than I ever than I ever expected. Uh, and I think that a way to look at it now is that, you know, going forward, we're going to have to do things that augment machine intelligence rather than compete with machine intelligence. And the things that augment machine intelligence tend to be things that humans do exceptionally well, which is empathy and um, coming up with new stuff uh, mm. and, and creativity. And so I think that, that, that that's, I think I really do think that that's the way that machines, at least at this point, have a hard machine intelligence has a harder time understanding what someone else is feeling and thinking has a harder time coming up with things that are purely novel and unexpected um and i think that's what human beings are going to do if you sort of take yourself back 
to when you were, you know, in your early twenties, for example, just starting your career. I was wondering whether there's anything that you wish you'd known then that you know now. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, there's so much there's there. I mean, there, 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 I mean, I I don't even know where to begin on that. Um, (laughs) The, um, I mean, one thing was, um, I mean, some, I mean, I don't even, there, I mean, there are multiple things. One of them is that, uh, is the importance of, of, um, that, that who you work with is as important as what you do. Mm. So you can, you can find some, oh, wow, that sounds like a really interesting job. And if you're surrounded by people who aren't that great or who don't share your values, it's miserable. Mm. Um, so, you know, who you work with is as important as what you do. I, I had no idea about that. Uh, I do think that it's important to when you're when you're looking for opportunities, when, when you're trying to figure out what to do next is not to make too many assumptions that you know what it's like. That's where I've made a lot of mistakes um, where I say, oh, uh, it's going to be, you know, working at this kind of place is going to be like this. When, in fact, what you want to do is you want to do something called surrogation, where you find somebody who's like you, who's gone through this and find out what their experience was like. Um, and so that was a that was another huge uh, that was another huge lesson. Um, the, um, you know, I, 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 I probably should have done a better job of just maintaining contacts with people because what, what you have now, the world that I have worked in has become so much less hierarchical. So you have these, you know, people who were, I mean, I see this all the time. I mean, I, I, I'm self-employed, but I see this all the time where somebody who was, who was the boss of, you know, if A was the boss of B in like 10 years later, B could be the boss of A. Yeah. Um, and so you have, you have that kind of fluidity. So, you know, there are all kinds of things that I wish I knew. Dan, I really appreciate your time today. Just, is there anything else you'd want to add? Any other points you want to share about regret or any of the other topics we talked about? No, I mean, I do think that, I, I, you know, on regret, I think that, you know, it's our most misunderstood emotion as we were talking about earlier. And, you know, and, and it, it's unpleasant, but you have to think about like, why does this unpleasant thing persist? Why do we still have it? And the reason we have it is that it's useful. It instructs us. It clarifies us. And, and so um, and so what I'm trying to do in this book is, is re, reclaim the conversation about regret and say, listen, it doesn't feel good, but there's a use to it. And if we just act like grownups and confront it, we can enlist it to find the good life. Dan, thanks again for your time. Pleasure, Ali. Thanks for having me. So that was my conversation with Dan Pink from last year. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, I'll be returning with Alison Bourne-Gates to talk about her new book, Breaking Into Venture. Until then, have a good week.